Uh, welcome to the studio. So good to see you, Hidden Nation. You got Josh Carey here. It's your Hidden Entrepreneur. So good to see you and be seen. It's right here on 710 WOR, the voice of New York. And you know what the great thing is? You have this at your fingertips anytime you want. You want this show or shows like this? All you got to do is download that free iHeartRadio app and the world is yours. Bump around, listen in, tune in and watch and live the best life you can. Today, we have a very interesting scenario for you. You know what I do day in and day out to serve you in the kind of topics. Well, this is taking those kinds of topics with a spin. We're joined by two scholars in the criminal side of psychology and the dark side of entrepreneurship. What? Yeah, there's a dark side. Something tells me you've felt it, you've experienced it, maybe you've read about it, maybe all of those things. But now we're going to dig into a few news headlines and get their take on what's up, what makes them tick. What is fraud driven by? Why do people engage in this behavior? We're going to unravel that. And to help us do all of it, I'm joined by Dr. Marshall Jones and by Joey Flores. Thank you both for joining the program. Nice to be here. You got it. So, Marshall, let me start with you. Help paint the picture of why people do what they do in this context. Is this driven by money? Is it greed? Is it power? What makes them tick in this direction? It's yes, yes, and yes to all three of those things. So, you know, you, you really can't separate it. And it's interesting. I'm a behaviorist. Uh, I'm not a psychologist. I'm a behaviorist. I've studied them. And the interesting thing with looking at behavior is we know what our intent is, but when others watch our behavior, they can only see our behavior. So whether or not our intent is good and things go wrong, or if you what I like to call a narcissistic jack wagon and your intention is for it to go wrong right from the bat, uh, all we can do is go by what we see. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, I teach forensic psychology to undergrads. I teach uh, psych and leadership to grad students, and I tell them all the same thing. Sometimes we'll label something as a crime. But it's really better to look at it through the lens of behavior, because depending on where you're at in the United States or the world, one behavior may be a business opportunity in one place that could be a crime in another. You can look at marijuana, you can look at prostitution, you can look at a host of different things. So when you look at it from a behavior and whether or not it's harmful to themselves or others or not is kind of a is a better gauge than just going with the default on what whether it's crime or not. So, you know, looking at entrepreneurship and criminal behavior, you know, the interesting thing is drug dealers throughout history, are they not the most extreme entrepreneurs? I mean, you could go back to the, you know, to crack epidemic, and I don't want to minimize the, you know, the harms of those things, but you take a white powdery substance that was very expensive you mix it up with grandma's foot powder in your kitchen with a skillet. You bust it up into a smokable form. So now instead of it going through mucous membranes, it goes through your lungs. You can get a lot more effect for the bang for the buck, so to speak. And if you're talking about entrepreneurial activities that are criminal and harmful, you know, there are examples throughout history. Marshall, do you think that the majority of these corporate, uh, what do you call them, um, narcissistic? Jack wagons. 
Yeah. Do you think that is this a combination or does it lean one way or another? Do these people have a tendency to go into the venture knowing that they'll have the opportunity for a darker approach? Or is it like, well, if somebody is presented with the opportunity, now they're given the choice and they made the wrong choice. Well, and I think I think it's interesting. So, you know, we can look at Bernie Madoff, for instance. He had more money than Scrooge McDuck. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to work. But yet the gamesmanship of doing that Ponzi scheme was really just was attractive to him. So you also have folks that get in over their head and they got to bring in the money to, to keep the mm-hmm. business going. Right. So they may have started out well intended and, and ended up on the dark path of entrepreneurship. We'll call that. But then you have folks like with the fraud. Uh, with Elizabeth Holmes, for instance, you know, she went in knowing that that her technology was crap, mm-hmm. right? And it was moving that fraud along, and she had the ability to get people to buy in and believe and invest in this thing that, you know, it's one of those things that grandma and grandpa tell you, if it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. And this is one of those age-old things that was too good to be true. Yeah, Joey, I want to get your take on this. Marshall brought up Elizabeth Holmes. Of course, we're talking about the former CEO of Theranos. It was once valued at $9 billion. The, she was the darling of Silicon Valley. No longer. She's, she's also a Stanford dropout who uh, pursued this, now finds herself serving 11-year sentence for, for wire fraud and conspiracy Joey, what are your thoughts on the case and how does it stand out from other cases like this you've seen? Yeah, so the Holmes case is possibly one of the most uncommon in history. It involves a Stanford dropout who excelled as a young student during her high school years. I mean, Holmes was bright. She sold C++ compilers and other software to Chinese schools when she was an adolescent. And I think even her great-great-grandfather was a surgeon, in which um, I think that inspired Holmes to pursue a profession in the medical field. The most remarkable aspect of this case was Holmes' ability to collaborate closely with very powerful people at the pinnacle of her billion-dollar organization. So uh, these were not just ordinary leaders that she collaborated with. Betty Davos, which was the uh, former Secretary of Education, Jim Mattis, which was a former Secretary of Defense, Henry Kissinger, which was a former national security advisor and top diplomat, they were all investors or contributors to her organization. And uh, there were other contributors as well. Like, for example, the media mogul Rupert Murdoch, the Walton family, there were two U.S. senators. There was even a former Wells Fargo CEO. So the allegations made against her in the indictment that, that was served to her, they were considered unprecedented at the time, especially for a Wall Street exec. Holmes was charged with wire fraud on nine counts and conspiracy on two counts. And similar behavior um, has been observed in like other recent cases. Like, for example, the cryptocurrency fraudster, um, Sank Backman-Fried, who deceived his way to billionaire status by donating to high-ranking Democrats and lying to investors. Well, these specific cases of investment in wire fraud, like the Holmes case, I think they could be attributed to the perpetrator's use of psychological tactics. For example, uh, investors who are frequently persuaded to invest in specific businesses through a strategy known as phantom riches, in which investors are promised a future wealth and a guaranteed income, 
Investors are also led to believe that other savvy investors with powerful personal connections have already invested in the opportunity. And this type of social consensus may explain like some of the victimology associated with investment fraud. Uh, some con artists may even use the scarcity tactic in which basically they create a false sense of urgency by you know, claiming something is in short supply when it's not. Yep. Marshall, do you believe that the sentence 11 years fits the crime? Is she going to learn from it? Does she come out rehabilitated? What do you feel? Well, you know, the, the rehabilitation uh, issue through our criminal justice and, and, and correction system has been long debated. And here's the deal. You know, whether somebody goes in on petty crime and they don't even have a GED or it's someone who obviously, you know, has graduated high school, has some college and has built people of billions of dollars, it's really going to depend on what they choose to do while they're in prison. Are they just are they just buying their time? Or are they going to improve themselves? You know, one of the things that's interesting is we as the citizens expect people to go to prison to be punished, but actually being in prison is the punishment, right? So most folks are going to get out of prison, whether they're a, a crack cocaine dealer or someone who's who's done this fraud, and what they are able to do in prison. Now, she's in a federal prison, minimum security, is likely to have a lot more opportunities than someone in a state prison on a violent crime or a drug charge. So what does she do with it? You know, is she going to write a book while she's in there that when she gets out, she's got a book to sell? Is she going to go to consulting on you're getting ready to go to prison, things you need to know? It really kind of depends on what she's going to make of that time. And speaking of most people get out of prison, we know that Manuel Marin, the 69-year-old co-founder of Presidente Supermarkets, he's not getting out of prison, unfortunately, served a life sentence for uh, killing a man in 2011 that was believed to have an affair, the old affair thing with his ex-wife, um, Joey. How unusual is this case surrounding Manuel Martin? The case is very gruesome. I'm sure many people in the, like, the South Florida communities, they were shocked to learn that, you know, such a tragedy could have occurred with a you know, well-known exec like Manuel. I mean, you're talking about a carefully organized, well-executed plot to kidnap and murder a low-profile businessman. The executive's intention to, um, to flee to like another country, I think it was Spain. It raised a lot of suspicion among like the investigators who looked into the you know, all the evidence left behind. Uh, given the nature of like the person who organized their murder for hire plot, I mean it's a very unusual case. The fact that the body was discovered on like a dirt road sometime after the incident, around June first of twenty eleven, I believe it does not guarantee that they weren't the only ones involved. There could have possibly been um, other culprits involved. But nonetheless, though, after a 12-year-old deal with the case, um, it was great to see justice served to the Salazar family. Marshall, there's, there's an interesting concept here that these um, corporate players, like I said at the top of the show, where you said yes, yes, and yes, it's driven by power, greed, and that sort of a thing. Do you think that someone like Manuel Marin does his role as co-founder in that venture, which certainly supplied him with wealth and access and power, 
does that in some way play into the action he took? In other words, if he was just, let's say, a construction guy, could he have still found himself on this path? You know, it's interesting, you know, whether you're uh, working construction or you're co-founder of a supermarket chain and have a lot of money, you know, it's interesting when you look at murders, murders for hire, um, and a lot of the times it comes back to unresolved grievances. So when you when you look at threat assessment, you know, if you fire somebody, do you need to worry about them coming back into your workplace and doing violence? When you're looking at kids in school that make threats, do they actually have a means to do those threats? But when you unwind that stuff in the domain of threat assessment, you always got to look for unresolved grievances. And this story is he found out his wife had been having a long time affair with this guy. And certainly he had the money to hire some folks to go out and do this. But it was such an unresolved grievance and such an affront to him as a human being that he dropped his daughter off. He had these guys kill this guy. The prosecutor called it the bound, beaten and burned, you know, murder. And he flees to Spain knowing that he's going to forfeit everything he's worked for. But but that that grievance, being aggrieved to that level, was that important? And, you know, when you look at theories of crime, there's a lot. But one that I find interesting, especially in cases like this, it's homicide adaptation theory. And it basically holds that it, it, and it has its roots in evolutionary theory. So when you have your, and, and in this term, I call it mate poaching. Somebody's poached your mate. What do you do? Well, most of us just get divorced, right? <laughs> Split up what you're going to split and move on, find love somewhere else, do your thing. But in some cases, the answer is, well, kill the person who poached your mate. Some cases, it's kill the mate that was poached. When you look at Dateline and 2020 and all these shows that look at these crimes, it follows this pattern, right? It's it's someone you know. There's usually some infidelity. It's unresolved grievances. All these things pay out. So in this particular case, I think that the that the wealth that he had helped him hire the people to do it. But if he was a construction worker, it may have been just a couple of his buddies from his job site. Marshall, here's my question. Is is the path to entrepreneurship and the path to a very violent crime or not violent, but a crime nonetheless, are they, is there a pre predisposition to one to the other or are they completely separate until they cross paths? Yeah, and it's an interesting question. There's a book called Snake and Suits, where Babbage and O'Hare look at psychopathy in the workplace, and they find that folks, especially the higher they go in the corporate ladder, tend to score higher on a, on the psychopathic scale. Now, that doesn't mean they're necessarily doing bad things, but you know anybody who's worked in a large organization has worked for who has known people that are either toxic bosses or like I call the narcissistic jack wagons, it's all about them, they're great. It's that boss who takes credit for your ideas and gives you no credit, those types of things. But I think when you're looking at entrepreneurship and crime, there's a common thread of risk taking. I mean, there's huge risk you take when you're being an entrepreneur, you know, depending on, you know, do you have a retirement? Do you have a steady stream of income? Are you out here busting your butt every day, just trying to make your business work to feed your family? Well, that same risk-taking behavior is going to play itself out in crime, whether it's an entrepreneurial type of a crime, you're selling drugs, you're, you're selling something, or whether it's going to be murder for hire or enormous types of fraud. So I think it's that common aspect of risk-taking. And the other part of it, where we're talking psychopathy, narcissism, we're talking about uh, psychopathy, 
just because someone may have a negative affect, right? They, they may not express a concern for others or even have a concern for others. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to, for, for lack of a better word, do bad things or do harmful things to others. We can look at folks in our military service that in combat have had to do things that basically forced them to function in a sociopathic or psychopathic way because you have to isolate those things, right? Um, I remember my days in law enforcement, there would be cases that were truly hor horrible cases that you'd go to, accident scenes, or children or others who, who have been killed or have deceased, and you've got to compartmentalize those things so you can just function at your task. So I think it's risk-taking, and then how does it manifest, whether it's harmful to others or beneficial to others? Yeah, absolutely did. I want to go over to Joey um, as we're talking about, uh, I love the phrase um, narcissistic jackrabbit. Uh, whether you love him or not, I'm going to segue to Trump, right? Because even if you love him, can't deny he's a bit, uh, he's a bit narcissistic, right? Um, with that, we know that he's become the first former U.S. president to be brought up on these criminal charges like this. Joey, are the defending remarks made by Trump in his series of legal woes, are they appropriate or do we have something else going on here? Well, first off, I think it was pronounced, is it narcissistic jackwagon or you said, how is it pronounced? Narcissistic jackwagon. I said jackrabbit, which is the, right? <laughs> that's the animal part of it. Okay, so it was well known that Trump would be a very divisive politician. Ever since he walked down the escalator at Trump Tower in New York and declared his presidential candidacy. So, I mean, there were numerous instances during and after Trump's presidency in which his behavior was called into question. Um, I don't think it's wise uh, to speculate about a former world leader's behavior on camera or in social media feeds because many people are not like that behind closed doors. I mean, there are numerous investigations into the former president who is running for re-election for a third time. Um, Trump's previous statements about the investigation into him, they increase partisanship, they widen the nation's divide. If elected, he will be the highest ranking official in the executive branch. Um, he will be overseeing a vast network of intel agencies, about like 17 in total. Um, he's going to help to shape the national security, public safety, through oversight of the DOJ and the DHS. Uh, it's very unusual for a former president and a strong GOP contender to make such defensive remarks like in the wake of his legal troubles. Some of the allegations leveled against Trump are still being investigated or maybe under seal, and the full due process is not taking place yet, so I think it would be premature for me to speculate on whether Trump's remarks were appropriate or not. However, they are highly unusual and very serious. The mishandling of, of highly classified documents is significant. And if true, it could put our country in jeopardy. Yeah. You know, prior to uh, prior to Trump becoming president, Trump contributed to and met with A-list members of like both political parties. He was surrounded by some of the wealthiest and and even the most narcissistic people. Um, you know, the centralized function of some oligarchies, particularly those of Trump's stature. It's simply attributed to like a constant desire to use like political actors as proxies for their own policy initiatives. Trump is a person who probably benefits personally and socially from influencing others, particularly through the remarks, whether they have merit or not. The power of social influence in attracting like large crowds of people 
it's extremely important right now. I mean, we're right now in an election cycle and Trump and his uh, Republican counterpart, Ron DeSantis, I mean, they appear to have mastered the art of social influence. Yeah, Marshall, speaking of social influence, what does this say about the psychology of the supporters, whether it's Trump, whether it's Marin, whether it's Elizabeth Holmes or anybody in that category? We see over and over again that no matter what they do, they will still have a supportive fan base. What does it say about the supporters? Well, it's an easy but a complicated question. So when you talk about narcissistic jackwagons, they're going to have influence to have a level of influence to manipulate people, right? So you, know, you can turn on any news channel, whether it leans right, leans left, if it's international, and you're going to see politicians from around the world, whether they're presidents or in Congress or anywhere else. And there is an exception that you don't see narcissistic jack wagons. I mean, I think when you're talking about this level of power, the reality is every election that I can remember ever voting in, I've always thought, is this the best two we can do? And there have been times I've thought, well, this person may be a better presidential candidate. And then you come to the realization, if you weren't a narcissistic jack wagon, what would be your motivation? to enter into this ring where your entire life is going to be laid bare for everyone to see and pick apart. And if you, if you have family and you have kids, you know, I don't know anybody that doesn't have things in their past that they just soon leave in their past. So in some cases, I think when you look at supporters, whether it's, it's those diehard supporters, you can look at Trump or you can look at the diehard supporters of Biden. We can look at that anywhere is that they have, got followers who they identify with, whether it be their policy, the the influence, whether it be like with Trump. You know, Trump makes a case that justice is not uh, equally distributed between um, blue and red, you know, Democrats and Republicans. And you when you look at it, you could you could see how some could make that case. Others would make the case, even if that's true, why do you allow narcissism to continue to feed that argument? But sometimes the more he fights, the more some of his followers follow. Whether it's a criminal, whether it's a politician, there are going to be some that they've just formed. And, and, and it, when we look at leadership, we look at charismatic leaders, right? We can look back at some of our greatest presidents in history that were charismatic, but there's a two-sided coin to charisma. I mean, we want to follow charismatic leaders that we can get behind. But on the other hand, you can look at charisma, look at Adolf Hitler, very charismatic leader and look at the evils that it went there. So charisma, charismatic leaders are, is neutral. It's how they choose to use that charisma. So a good example is, you know, a lot would say that uh, Elizabeth Holmes was charismatic in her own way and some followed her. I would say now that short of her family, most of the investors have long since stopped because the chances of them getting paid back with her working for, you know, 99 cents or a buck an hour in prison, that's going to be a lot of years before she can pay back those billions of dollars. What are, I'm glad you brought up something like charisma, which could be good and bad. The, the example of fire, right? You could use it for good. You could use it for yeah. bad. Um, narcissistic certainly has been a, uh, a thematic trait here today. Let's take that and flip it to the positive. What does being narcissistic in a positive light do? In other words, what good 
do these people have that actually works in their favor? And let, and let me go for it. So you've got narcissistic personality disorder, and that's the true narcissistic jack wagon. It's all about me. Look at me. Love me. Feed me. Why don't you love me? You know, that kind of thing. So here's where a good nexus with leadership is. The concepts of leadership and how to develop rapport and gain the trust so that people follow you, that concept's not a rocket science proposition. Where it gets hard is we're human beings. You know, we talked about homicide adaptation theory earlier. We all have our worldviews, our experiences. We handle things. that We make mistakes. We say stupid stuff. Sometimes we do things where we have our cranial rectumitis and it really gets in our way. But people sometimes have to make difficult decisions. So you can look at emergency services. You can look at police and fire. You can look at doctors and hospitals. You can look at folks in military. And you can even take this to boardrooms. Sometimes you have to reorganize and you have to lay people off. Sometimes you have to cut jobs. Sometimes you have to move production facilities. The difference is... Is that done in a in a manner in which people understand why these tough decisions are being made? Or is it just some narcissistic jack wagon sitting behind their desk with their top hat and their monocle dictating how this is going to go? Crystal clear. Joey Flores, final thoughts, please. Uh, there are characteristics that are associated with perpetrators of investment fraud victimization. For example, like in the Holmes case, what Marshall was uh, speaking about regarding narcissism, so that is uh, very common in those type of situations. You know, obviously, the perpetrators, they, uh, they often feel grandiose, antisocial. They, you know, they may lack empathy as well. Antisocial people are typically motivated by a strong desire to justify their greed and their perceived uh, superiority. They could be enthusiastic risk takers driven by excitement or a lack of self-control. And a perceived need for financial security among those with like lower education levels or lower socioeconomic status, that could explain why investment fraud occurs uh, socially rather than psychologically. And in terms of like cognitive factors, you know, perpetrators, you know, they may have a narcissistic fuel delusions or an overestimation of their decision making abilities. Many people often do not consider, um, you know, such people's behavior to be irrational or abnormal. Many people don't even recognize a problem as serious until it's too late. Wow. There you go, Hidden Nation. Fascinating conversation on all sides of entrepreneurship, the dark side included. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Marshall Jones, Joey Flores. Thank you to the both of you for joining our program today. And thank you, Hidden Nation, for spending your time. I really appreciate it. We're going to do it again before too long. Until we do, take care. Be well.